Let's begin reading in verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for things, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Lord, we just thank you that You've thought of everything. There's nothing you've left out that we need. You have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, Lord. Thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit who makes us able to walk with you, to please you, to be empowered to serve you and to be witnesses to you, Jesus. We want to grow in our relationship with you. We want to be made into the disciples that you have in mind for each one of our lives. Use these verses, Lord, to speak to us, to encourage us, to exhort us, to comfort us, to redirect us, Lord. We're open and naked before you, your word says. Our hearts are open before you. Speak to your servants today. We want to grow. We want our lives to bring you glory today and forevermore. We commit this time to you. We ask that you would set it aside for your holy use. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The Lord has laid heavily on my heart to teach on the importance of maintaining unity within the church. We've always been blessed in the little over eight years that we've been a fellowship We've always been blessed with unity and without much division at all and very peaceful place and 
I've really enjoyed that. And, and I think one of the reasons why that we've been able to enjoy that kind of peace and have an environment where divisiveness is not a, a preeminent issue is because we aim to teach the Bible here. That's my aim. That's anyone that lays down doctrine or teaches the word here, uh, and not just on Sundays, but any time their desire is to, to lay it down properly, effectively, teach all of it in context and all those things. And that kind of weeds out certain types of people that are coming and seeking a church. And so many people have different ideas about what a church should be and what they are wanting from a church and all of that. And so often, unfortunately today, <clears throat> and it's going to get worse and worse, people are going to have less of an appetite for God's word and they want just something that's going to help them be prosperous to not necessarily touch on the things that make us holy. So when you're covering lots of scripture and you're covering them and you're actually teaching them and not teaching from them, you don't have any place to hide. I mean, it's convicting. I remember when I first came to Calvary Chapel, I'm like, these lightweights don't even have adult Sunday school. I mean, what's wrong with these people? You know, and then I went, sat through a teaching. I'm like, I couldn't take Sunday school on that, too. There's no way. You know, and then I'm like, that's convicting, too, because you're looking at Scripture. And so there are people that aren't interested in growing as a disciple. They're not interested in having God speak to them and, and convict them and grow and all of that. They're not going to last very long. And then people that end up wanting that, it creates a very healthy environment, and we get to enjoy that and so forth. So, so that's in part, I believe, and of course, it's just God's grace in our church because he's gracious, that we haven't had to deal with any substantive type issues related to uh, division. But even with all of that, we still have our moments, don't we? I mean, just as individuals where we get in the flesh and we want to lash out or we want to not obey God's word. I mean, it got kind of quiet in here, but I, I'm assuming that you're agreeing with me and amening in your heart because I don't, can't be the only one that gets in the flesh sometimes. Uh, I hope that you're with me on that. Uh, but we all struggle with that. And what the enemy wants to do, any time that we are walking according to our flesh or walking in our sinful nature, we give the enemy so much opportunity to capitalize on that and to use that for evil in our lives, in the church and outside of the church and, and, and so forth. And so he has his devices. Paul wrote that. In 2 Corinthians, he said, we're not ignorant of the enemy's devices. He has strategies and all of that. Paul wasn't ignorant to that. We're not ignorant to that. So the enemy loves to cause divisions in the church. That's Satan's preferred math. He likes to divide. You know, there's fusion when things are brought together. There's fission when things are broken apart. That's what they did with the atom. When they split the atom, they broke it in half. They caused, and that caused a lot of, obviously it causes a lot of, uh, you know, detriment to anything in its path. And that's how it is spiritually. God loves to add. Sometimes he does subtract, but, but he usually never divides. He'll, he'll multiply. He loves to do that. But the enemy really has the, spiritually speaking, he kind of has the corner. It's his specialty or whatever to divide. And he can take the littlest of things and blow them into huge divisive battles where people are taking sides and escalate. I've seen it. I've, I've, it's, it's, it's not good at all. No one wins as a result of that. So he comes in and causes pain and turmoil and strife and, and, and people, they end up 
going away. Like, I mean, not just in a church, but in a family, in a marriage, in, in friendships, uh, a workplace. I mean, it's our flesh, it's so easy to, di- to divide. It doesn't take any effort. We don't have to be taught how to divide <laughs> and how to break off from someone and just, I'm done with you. You know, that in the body of Christ. So you have to realize there's a lot of churches in our area, but in these situations, in the early church, there wasn't a lot of options for people. And God still told them to be in fellowship with one another and all of that and to, to not neglect the gathering of the saints and all that. So in his mind, even if there's only one church, you could, there's no conflict that couldn't be conquered because of the capacity that we have as Christians to forgive, to offer grace, and all the things that we have uh, at our disposal because of our relationship with him and because of what he's done for us, we have the capacity to solve any conflict at all. That the solution never has to be that I'm going to move on to another church or I'm going to move, get out of my job because of this or whatever it is, the easy escape route. There's always a, a way for us to biblically deal with it. We say, well, how does, God doesn't really teach us about how to deal with our enemies. Yes, he does. He tells us to love them. He tells us to bless them. That takes a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We don't have that capacity in and of ourselves. I mean, I don't. Maybe you do. Maybe it just comes naturally for you to love your enemy. You should write a book on that. I'll be glad to buy it and, and have you sign it, actually. Uh, but, the, you know, when we are engaged in division, whatever it is, and no matter where we're at, not just the, in the, when we gather or whatever, our church or whatever, wherever we're at in a business, in a family or whatever, when, we, when all that's happening, the gospel isn't being preached, people aren't being served, disciples aren't being made, people are being distracted away from that, and we're dragged into things and accused of things, and people are taking sides. It caused discouragement and pain. And so the enemy works overtime to bring division, and, and he usually does it. And I've been in the church for a little while, not just this one, but you know, for over half, a quarter of a century, not half a century yet. But over a quarter of the century, I've been in the church. And, I, and there's, there's really four main times where we see the enemy have an opportunity or likes to bring extra division. I mean, or extra. I mean, he works overtime or sees it as a prime opportunity. One is right before a breakthrough. The second is after a victory. The third is during a project. With, we, we see that in Nehemiah. Okay, and the number four is when we make a huge commitment to prayer. And those four things I have seen over and over again where the enemy just works overtime to bring division. And for us right now, it's a project. It's our building project that we're about to begin. And that's one of the reasons why I believe the Lord's laid on my heart to deal with this is because we have to be on guard against that. The enemy knows our plans. He doesn't have any faith that we're going to fulfill those plans. But he'll do whatever he takes to make sure that that doesn't happen. But, of course, the Lord is responsible for all of that. Jesus said he would build his church. We're not fixated upon the enemy. We're not worried about him at all. We know his devices, though. And we need to do everything in our power to keep the unity of the Spirit. So it requires all of us to be on guard, walking in the Spirit, guarding our prayer times, guarding our devotion times, endeavoring to keep that unity. And so today I want to bring nine principles or ways from this passage that we can keep the unity of the Spirit. And God, on purpose, probably didn't let me have ten, 
because he knows I want 10 and wants to keep me like, you don't need to have everything just, you know, pretty and perfect with a bow tied around it. You know, I'm going to just give you nine. And Dave Miller will tell you that that probably would bug me. Uh, so anyway, the first, the first way that to keep the unity of the Spirit is to beware of pride. Look with me at verse 3. He says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. So in this verse, the Apostle Paul clearly says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that God gave him grace to instruct the Romans, the people in the Roman church, the church in Rome, and us, not to have pride. God, what is pride? Pride is seeing yourself above. That's what pride is. Best definition I've ever heard. Seeing yourself above. It's when you think you're above someone and you see someone below you. That's when you have, that's how you can recognize. And, you know, we need help sometimes with pride. I heard a long time ago that one of the first things that pride does is it incapacitates you to be able to recognize it in yourself. And we can see, can't we see our sin in other people's lives so vividly? But with us, it's a little bit hard to see. But pride is really hard to see. We can see it in other people really well. We're like experts in it. Let's write books on it. You know, I'll, write, I'll sign it for you. The book that I write on how to recognize pride uh, in other people. It's so obvious. It's so easy. But we don't necessarily see or want to see it on our own lives. But it's there. That was the first sin was pride. That got Lucifer kicked out of heaven was pride in his heart. So we have to be very careful. We are not better than others. Let's just freshly tell us ourselves that. We are not better than others. We don't, there's a difference between acting like you're not better and actually believing in your heart that you're not better. And that's something that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts and he shows us and he shows us how we're just acting like we're we're we're, uh, you know, not higher up or, or better than someone. But in reality, we think we really are. And that's what we have to be very careful with because we think that we're better. And, and so we're supposed to think of others better than ourselves. How do we do that? By appreciating them. By looking at people's lives and appreciating the things that God has done in their life and is doing in their lives, their gifts, their heart, their capacity to bless, all those things, and just appreciate those things and admire those things in other people. You know, people usually with, that love to encourage people are very good at observing and admiring qualities in people and being willing to speak up and share that with them. And we don't realize how powerful that is. That is so powerful to be able to do that. We think it's very powerful when people do it to us, but somehow we think it's not as powerful when we do it to others. But it is. Why is it any different? It's the, it's the same um, appreciation. We're also told in verse th- 3 to think soberly. What is th- of course, that means we're going to need to be sober, and physically, of course, but sober-minded is thinking honestly and accurately, an accurate assessment. It's looking at something and people fairly, appropriately. That requires us to take in facts, and it requires us to inquire at times. It, 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 uh, it requires us to pay attention to their lives and what's going on. And he tells us there that God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Why is that important? It's important. They think it's important. They just yelled for it. <laughs> Why is that important? It's important because we 
can criticize others and have pride in our heart that they should be walking a certain way at a certain pace because we have the standard in our minds of what that should be because we're measuring ourselves against that standard and we think we're doing pretty good, which is not accurate a lot of the times. But he says God has given everyone a different measure of faith. Everybody's at a different growing point related to their faith. And so part of having pride related to the rest in the body of Christ is seeing yourself above other people related to your faith or, or your growth or your maturity or where you're at in the body of Christ or whatever it is. And so that, that promotes unity to be able to appreciate that other people are, it's like almost like when you're looking at your children and they're progressing in a certain age and then another child is progressing at a certain rate at another age and, and you, would, you would try to hold them to the same standard, but they're different. They're, they're different levels of maturity that God made them differently. You can't have the same expectation in certain things for all your kids. They, they're at different they're totally different in many ways, and we have to understand that. That's how God's seeing us as his children. He's seeing us grow different rates and, and everything. And what if one of our children was criticizing the other and saying, you're not doing this at the same rate that I did? What would that do to your heart? It hurt your heart because you know that they're different, and, and they shouldn't be comparing themselves among themselves in that way. The second way we can keep the unity of the Spirit is to recognize our proper relationship with the body. Look at verses 4 and 5. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Notice in verse 4, we don't have the same function. See, this is very important for us to understand because we're all made differently in the body of Christ, and we all have different gifts. And when we have pride about someone else's place in the body of Christ, and we see them lower than us, or, or we, whatever it might be, we're not recognizing that we're all one body. How would you like it if your hand criticized your knee? It says, you're just not, you're not moving fast enough when we walk, because I can't get to the refrigerator to get that, you know, leftover Slurpee, that bucket, that I have in my refrigerator is the free, free cups or where you bring your own cup. People are backing up dump trucks to 7-Eleven, filling them up with Slurpees because you can bring any container that you want. Okay, I, I didn't buy anything. Trust me, it's not a confession time. But, you know, but you're, you're the, our parts of our bodies are all one. And we see ourselves primarily, unfortunately, in our culture as supremely individuals. And God does, doesn't see us supremely that way. In his word, he sees us primarily as a body, emphasizes that over and over again. But we're also individual members. And the other thing he says there in those verses that's very noteworthy is that we're members of one another. What does that mean? Individually members of one another. We belong to one another. Your hand belongs to your foot. You know, your heart belongs to your ear. I mean, it's all one thing, but yet it's all, if one part is affected, the other parts suffer. We're told that in, in, in Scripture. So we're members of one another. It's very hard to have division when you see yourself as a larger whole and that you're interdependent and you need each other. And when one part of you suffers, the rest suffer. So we think when one part in the body suffers, that it doesn't really affect us, but it does affect us greatly. It affects the capacity for gifts to be walked in and, and disciples to be made and the cohesion of our fellowship and, and the unity that causes fruit 
in the body. It's very important for us to see that. The third way we can keep the unity of the Spirit is to use our gifts. Verse 6 says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. How easy is it to be divisive when you're serving somebody? It's really hard. When you're serving their needs and you're helping them grow and you're taking care of their needs, you're given to hospitality, all these things that he's talking about, how difficult it is to divide off away from that person. It's very difficult because you're seeing their needs. You're having compassion for them. You're seeing what they're going through. You're, you're, you're exposed to their needs in a way where you see, wow, this, what they go through and the things that they do and say and what they're about is totally different than what I thought. Because I, I didn't really have a capacity to get close enough to them before, but now that I'm serving them, I'm helping their needs, I get to see their lives close up. And, and, and it helps my perspective related to them, and it helps me pray for them and be gracious to them and try to encourage them and all of that. It's very difficult for us. And notice he says, we do it all with the grace that is given to us in the middle of verse 6. Anytime that we use our gifts, it's only because of grace. It's hard to see yourself as above people with pride related to gifts when you recognize that any gift that you have and that are using, it's only because of God's grace that you're using that in the first place. So it helps us against that pride. The fourth way we can keep the unity of the Spirit is to love genuinely. Look with me at verse 9. He says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. How do I love without hypocrisy? Well, what is hypocrisy? Some of you are newer to the Bible. Hypocrisy is, is being an actor. They would use that word to describe actors back in that day. They would wear a mask. So it literally means to wear the mask. And so actors, they pretend something outwardly, but inwardly they're completely different people in the terms of what, what they're saying and what they're doing in the moment. And we can do that as well. We can, <laughs> we can act we can act like we care for people. We can go through the motions. We're really good at going through motions and rituals. We can go through those things outwardly, but have our hearts completely in a different place. When we are loving genuinely, we're not acting. It's genuine from our hearts, and it's not something that I'm doing to get something. That's not love. Love is outward. It's not inward. We can actually do this. This is my heart included and yours as well. We can actually do loving things for people for selfish gain. And you know who sees that and who it grieves more than anybody is Jesus himself. Because he wasn't like that. He isn't like that. When he does something, he's fully engaged inwardly just as he is outwardly. And so we shouldn't do things for people. Love doesn't seek its own, we're told in 1 Corinthians 13. Love does not seek its own. And so we have to love without hypocrisy. And I am to abhor evil in showing that love. Those, those little phrases in the middle and the end of verse 9, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good, those aren't separate and disconnected from his exhortation to love without hypocrisy. It's very much connected. And, and what's interesting is that biblical love doesn't wink at sin 
It doesn't coddle sin. It doesn't, you know, re- refuse to be exhortive and just, oh, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to, you know, my, my, these people that I know, they're engaged in willful disobedience to the Lord, but I'm going to show this love and bless them, but I'm not going to say anything. That's not my place. Yes, as a Christian, it's our place to say something. And as Christians, it's our place to receive that exhortation. Sometimes you think someone is a mature believer and then you try to exhort them in a biblical way and it's like as if you just blew, you know, set a bomb off and trying to destroy them in their mind. And it's not true at all. We have to be able to receive exhortation because people pay a price to do that. People take risks to exhort us. We're the most, we're just toast. Let me just say that. We are just toast if we don't surround ourselves with people that love us enough to tell us the truth, even when it hurts us. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, we're told in Scripture. We have to have that. I have to have that. I have senior pastors and other pastors and friends that have great access to my life, that can say whatever they want at any time, ask any question, and they know they're not going to get any pushback from me, and I would be toast if I didn't have that, because, again, pride blinds. And we don't see our own pride, and we have to have people that love us enough to say and tell us the truth. So we can't wink at sin in the context of loving people. It's not loving to let people not hear the truth. Yes, there's a right way to do it. There's tact, and there's spirit-directed you know, speaking and with prayer and all those things and being careful what not to say as much as we're careful what we are saying. All of that's true, but we still have to speak the truth in love, we're told. And we have to cling to what is good in that. Now in verse 10, it's this special recipe, this secret recipe, you know, just came out that Colonel Sanders 11 herbs and spices came out. And you can look, go online and see what those are if you really care. Uh, But this is the secret sauce or the secret recipe here, number five, the way to keep the unity of the spirit. And it's to be affectionate and give preference. Look at verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. How in the world am I supposed to be divisive when I'm doing these things? It's impossible. You can't be. It's, this is very aggressive love. He's talking about affection now. He's getting into feelings now. He's talking about kindly being kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. See, there's different kinds of love in Scripture. There's the kind of love that's very, the most intense love, which is agape love. Unbelievers can have agape love, by the way. I mean, it says, you know, they love sin rather than light because their deeds are evil. That word love is agape. So it's a very intense love. Unbelievers use it to serve themselves. But believers use it to love God and to love other people. Jesus took that word and transformed it into something entirely different than what it was in classical Greek. But there's also brotherly love, phileo. That's where we get the word Philadelphia, Delphia City. It's a city of brotherly love. And that is more of a brotherly, affectionate you know, type of love. Then there's storge, which is a family love. It's a, it's a, a love that you express in a family and all that. God venerates and, and lifts up all three of those types of love in the New Testament. At one point, Jesus said, the Father loves the Son. We would assume that that would be agape there, but he uses uh, phileo here, the same one that he uses in verse 10. So it's not an inferior love. It's just a different type of love. 
And it's a very important love. And he says to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. And this one hurts right here. In honor, giving preference to one another. Oops. Ouch. Giving preference to one another. Putting others first. Very hard to be divisive. Have division going on when you're putting others first. You're considering them better than yourselves. You're not seeing yourself above them. And you're being gracious and all those things. That's the secret sauce right there. To be affectionate and give preference to people that are in the body. Now, verses 11 through 13 reveal how to do that. How to do verse 10. Verse 11, not lacking in diligence. So it's not something that we're intermittently doing. We are constantly, regularly doing that. Verse 10, don't lag in diligence, fervent in spirit. So it's a spiritual thing. It's a spirit. You're gaining our strength spiritually from the Lord. It's a spiritual serving. That's how we're able to be not lagging in diligence with it. And then recognizing that when we do that to the rest of the body, we're ultimately serving the Lord. We are serving them. And that's a blessing and a privilege. But ultimately, we're serving the Lord. And he, he sees it, and it blesses his heart. That reason alone should be enough for us to do this because it blesses him rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, that's difficult, continuing steadfastly in prayer. I just don't have the strength to do this. I don't have the strength to love someone like this because where's your prayer time? Where's your time communing with him? He gives us that power through prayer. If you have issues with somebody, pray for them. Start praying for them more than you complain about them in your heart. Praying for them. Your heart will start to change. You will start to see strength You will start to see power from the Holy Spirit. You will start to get insight into their life that you never dreamed you could have when you start praying for them and the Lord starts showing you things about their lives. It is so powerful. And then being practical, verse 13, distributing to the needs of the saints. People like to talk about these verses as about unbelievers and and people out there. He's talking about believers here. Distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. Hospitality is beautiful. And it's not just when giving someone water or something to drink when they come into our home. That's just a very little sliver. It's their whole experience when they're with us in our home or wherever we're at with them. Their whole experience is to make their lives so much better and so comfortable and so uh, just such a blessing to them. The people that have that gift or have that capacity by the Holy Spirit, it's, it's beautiful how they how they do that. But that's how we do verse 10. It's verses 11 through 13. The sixth way that we can keep the unity of the Spirit, and there's only 57 more, so don't worry. You're all right. Is to bless persecutors. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That hurts. But Jesus said that. What reward do you have? If you only do good to those who do good to you, what reward do you what reward is there in that? Don't even the hypocrites and tax collectors do that? We're, we're called to live higher in the body of Christ and outside into the world. We're called to, to live higher at a higher level because we have, we're connected with the Lord Jesus himself, getting his power and his grace to do what we're called to do. And we have the capacity to do that. So when someone upsets you, someone does something to hurt your feelings, get in the habit of think, how can I bless them? I need to start praying for them. I need to forgive them, but how can I aim to 
bless them. And the first way that you can bless anybody, the best way that you can bless anybody is to start praying for them. To start praying for them, as I mentioned. But also practical ways to bless them because God is watching. It matters to him how we treat our brothers and sisters in the church. Do not curse. Don't do a curse over their lives. Of course, it means, of course, includes profanity and all that. We see that in many other places, but he's talking about a curse and you know, speaking things that you're hoping evil comes over their lives. That should never come out of the mouth of a child of God, ever. Do not curse. The seventh way to keep the unity of the Spirit is to share in believers' trials and, and victories. Look with me at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Again, pretty hard to be divisive with someone who is being there for you through the you know, thick and thin. Because we want to just say, I don't want anything to do with them. And he says, not only do you don't have that relation, capacity or quote-unquote privilege, but you need to be involved in their life. And I'm not saying we have to be close to every single person in the body of Christ. I know that. There's different types of relationships and all of those things. But he's called us in the body to not just reject divisiveness and to shut all that down, but to people you know, that are going through great time, good times and all those things, to rejoice with them, to be happy for them, not envious, not, oh, man, they're successful, and where, where, where am I? What am I getting? Uh, you know, and you're, you're jealous and you have envy and all that, doesn't want any of that. And then, then when they're going through trials, to weep with them. Now, this is something that is impossible to do with hypocrisy. You can't, you can't love hypocritically and weep with those who weep. I mean, even actors can't just cry on demand always, you know I mean? And you can't do that. God doesn't want that. He wants it from our hearts to be there for them, to help them and all that, to understand what they're going through. We have no idea what people go through. We haven't walked in their shoes. We don't know what they're experiencing. We have to understand those things and be able to love appropriately as a result. The eighth way to keep the unity of the Spirit is to be of the same mind. Look at verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Set, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Where do we start with verse 16? <laughs> it's like, ouch. Paul told the leaders, by the Holy Spirit, these leaders in Philippi, he told them in his letter in Philippians chapter 4, he said this to two women that were having conflict in the church. And it got to him, and he knew the threat that it had on the church and what it could do. Because people love to take sides. People love to just look at one side of things, make a judgment, not investigate the whole matter, if it's even any of their business in the first place. Um, and, and they, they want to, you know, it just rips fellowships apart and churches apart. Paul knew that. And this is what he said to these two women. The women's names were Eodia and Syntyche. Okay, those are their names, these two women. Who he'd labor with, they'd labored with Paul in the gospel, he tells in that epistle. They, were, they weren't just brand new Christians who weren't mature at all. He'd already labored with them. He'd already served with them. So mature people aren't immune to this. We all have to be on guard against this. But he tells them, I implore Eodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now I noticed, shameless plug for inductive Bible study class, I noticed 
that he says, I implore twice in that verse. He said, I implore Eodia and I implore Syntyche. Why is that important? Because he could have said, I implore Eodia and Syntyche. And Syntyche could have said, hey, he didn't tell me implore. He said, you implore to you, not to me. But he said it twice. He said it to each one of them equally there. I implore you and I implore you. It's like sitting your kids down. Okay, you are doing this and you are doing this. You know, it's like the same thing. He's doing it via letter, though. I implore Eodia, I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. We're not told what they were disagreeing about. Paul was very wise to not get in the middle of that. He didn't have, he could have, and I'm sure he knew what it was. But it didn't matter. First of all, if he would have said what it was, our twisted minds would say, well, we only have to get along and be of the same mind when it's concerning this issue. That's how bad we are. We, myself included. But it doesn't matter what it is. Because... because they, have, they, they need to be of the same mind in the Lord and they have the Lord in common, it doesn't matter what their conflict is. They have way more in common than they have differences. Read Ephesians chapter 4. One body, one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one, 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 one. Repeating word all the way through there. Another shameless inductive Bible study plug. You notice those things. It matters. It makes a difference there. And he says, be of the same mind in the Lord. It's a big threat to the church. Paul knew it. If we have the same mind, we will set our minds on high, we will not set, rather, our mind on high things. We will associate with the humble. We will associate with everybody equally. And it helps so much when we're not wise in our opinion. But then we think, well, but, but, but my opinion is very wise. God, it's so wise. Why can't I be wise in my own opinion? Because my opinion is wise. I get all my opinions from you, so why can't I be? No, it's talking about your own thinking, your own perspective, your own, how you see the situation in a limited way. You know, the rabbis, when someone used to come and complain to them about another person, they'd immediately cover one ear, and the people would get the, okay, what does that mean? You know, this rabbi, he's like a Jedi master here. Why is he covering just one ear? What does that mean? It means that he doesn't have the other person present to hear the other side. He only hears one side of the story. And that would tell them, without even saying a word, that would tell them, oh, I better get the other person here if we're going to bring a complaint here so he can hear both sides of the story. God wants us to do that. None of us have the corner on truth. All of us have limited perspectives. We don't know what it's like to be in other people's shoes or their unique situation. Let's not assume the worst about somebody. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 says, Love hopes all things. It always considers the best for somebody. It always gives the other person the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise. Even if it, and, and that has to be like in our sphere of influence or it has to be part of our business to be able to find out. If we have an issue or a conflict with somebody, if someone sinned against us, let's obey Matthew chapter 18 that says that if someone has sinned against us, let us go to that person first that sinned against us. Not talk about him first. Go to that person first and, and try to win your brother. That's the whole point is try to win your brother. Let's not engage in these things, conversations that have nothing to do with us and the other person's not there. Let's shut all that down. I'm not saying we have a problem in that area. I'm just, it's always something we need to have before us. Let's be careful with all of those things. 
The ninth and final way to keep the unity of the Spirit is to not get even. (laughs) Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, so that means that there are some times where it's not possible. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, Verse 18, talking about living peaceable with all men, what's the context? It's revenge. What he's saying is living peaceable is not just trying to be without conflict. That should be automatic for us as Christians. It's talking about not getting even. That's how we're supposed to live peaceable. That's what he's talking about there. Live peaceably with, notice, all men. Oh, man, why couldn't he have said most men? You know, he said all men. And you know what all means in the original language? Oh, that's right. It means all. You don't have to be a Greek scholar uh, to understand that. Live peaceably with all men. We can't pick and choose the people with whom we're going to live peaceably. It's everybody. God deals equally with all of us the same way. He lives peaceably with, with us. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. Now, you can't claim that, that word there, that verse is for us. Well, God said vengeance is mine. No, he's not saying that. You see the, the capital M there? <laughs> That's a little bit of a difference there. Vengeance is mine, like God's saying it. Vengeance is mine, not yours. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap or in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. So we're supposed to be proactive with the people that we consider enemies and blessing them. Again, you, you and I don't have the capacity to do this in our flesh. We don't. We have to go to God and say, okay, I want to call down Patriot missiles. You know, I, there's this dog. Let's just, okay, it is confession time for a second here. There's this dog behind my house, and it barks and barks and barks so loud at the wrong times, any movement in the house. I mean, some egos pop up in my toaster, and it's barking. <laughs> Another confession. Egos, yeah. Let go of my ego. And I want to make, I want to cut those egos into ninja stars and go over the fence and boom, nail that dog. I want to so badly. Yeah, it's funny until you do it, and the dog's like, Okay, you can do, can't you do better than that? And then that is not even saying the owner, right? But it's driving me crazy. And I've had thoughts of doing, taking matters in my own hands here. But he's, he's called us to, and I haven't brought them a, you know, a fruitcake yet, the neighbors. Uh, but, I mean, I, I have to apply this to my own life here. And so it looks like I'll be trying to bless my neighbor here. Um, maybe a fruitcake would be like coals of fire on his head. <laughs> oh, I don't know. But the ego, the ninja star ego will not bless that dog, I'm sure. So let's move on. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's saying don't be overcome by evil, not just generally speaking. Don't be overcome by evil from other people. He's talking about enemies here. That's the context. People have done something to hurt us. Don't be overcome by that. Ultimately, people have no power over our lives. We, I mean, in the sense, we, are, we can be victims. We can, you know, suffer. I'm not saying that. 
But in terms of our outlook, our disposition, how we react to that, because we're Christians, we have the capacity to, to react correctly and biblically and appropriately and actually bless them. Jesus said, walk the extra mile. He said, if, if anyone wants to strike your cheek, turn the other cheek. Like, love will always win. Love, you can't resist love forever. It's impossible. It melts your heart. So in the body of Christ, bless people that you have problems with. I mean, let's just be honest. We're a family here. It's a family room. There's people that bug us, that irritate us, that do stuff. It's, that's normal. I mean, we're a family. What family wouldn't, I mean, doesn't have issues, right? But we're not a dysfunctional family where we don't talk about stuff. We're a functional family. We talk about it. So when we have to be gracious, we have to be loving, we have to be forgiving, we have to bless people, we have to serve them, we have to be kindly affectionate to one another, we, have, we shouldn't see ourselves above, we should consider others better than ourselves, we should prefer one another. All of that is an overflow, listen, it's an overflow of our walk with the Holy Spirit, with His power. We have to have that time with Him every day. We have to pray without ceasing. We have to be in communion with Him. Then He will overflow our lives. And these things won't be as difficult. But there'll be moments, though, no matter what we've been doing previously with communing with Him, where we are in a situation we don't sense the power to do the right thing, we have to ask right then, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Refill me right now. Give me the capacity to obey you right now. And He will always answer that prayer. I've never seen him not answer that prayer. It's when we try to roll up our sleeves, do it in our own strength, that we flop on our face and we can't do it. We have to let him do the work through us. That's when we understand that the Christian life becomes way easier because we're letting his power do the work through our lives instead of trying to do it ourselves. There's so much here. Let's guard against division. We are going to be in situations with this building project where we're going to have lots of opportunities to be gracious with one another. Long hours, mistakes, unmet expectations, tongues not being tamed, uh, bad decision-making. There's going to be a lot of things potentially that we're going to have opportunities to divide and to not be in unity. Let's be on guard against that. He's really leaned on my heart heavily to exhort us in that way because there's so much the enemy wants to do to distract because God knows what's going to happen over at that next building. There's no, like, buildings aren't the end all of things. It's just, they're just tools. And, but the most important thing about that building is that we're going to be in a place that's very needy, where people are hurting. They don't have hope. They don't have forgiveness. They're not on their way to heaven. Their lives are a mess. They're addicted to drugs. They're all these things. And he needs people there that are other-centered, in unity, completely going on, working off the same page. And to be tapped into him to be able to say, I love you. But if we're fighting against each other, we can't do that. We can't love people aggressively and be ready to disciple them. That's what he wants. Amen? Let's watch over our lives and our church. Okay? Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for helping us see the importance of these verses. Lord, we don't want to be hearers only. We want to be doers of your word. Help us to be willing to exhort one another, to receive exhortation. Help us, Lord, to guard our times with you. Help us to be patient and gracious and forgiving and to bless others. Help us, Lord, to think the best of people instead of the worst. Help us to not judge and assume things and know, try to 
guess where people's motives are. All these things, Lord, that you tell us to not be engaged in. And you have thought of everything related to these things. So help us to walk in unity, Lord. You prayed that we would be one. Help us to answer that prayer by being spirit-directed and spirit-powered to love one another. We thank you for the privilege of being changed by you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.